This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne has announced that Hamilton, including Brantford, Lindsay and Thunder Bay, will be part of a new provincial pilot project into basic income. Uh, how will this play out uh, come election time for the government? And is this politics or is this good policy? To talk more about all of this, Barry Kay is with us, political science professor Wilfrid Laurier University, and he is with us now. Hello, Barry. How are you today? I'm fine. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking the time to join us, Barry. We always appreciate this. Uh, good policy here or politics? Well, it may or may not be good policy. It's sort of an experimental program. It's something that's been talked about for a while. And it's not even clear whether it's good politics, but the uh, the premier is in such a hole that uh, she's just got to come up with, with things. Uh, this isn't the first attempt to try to dig herself out. Um, uh, and frankly, I, my hunch is that given that the election is scheduled now for, what is it, about 14 months from today, that this particular announcement probably is more a matter of sort of showing that she's doing something than that the policy itself will have any real impact or uh, there, there'll be even an ability to make a judgment about it by the time the election occurs. You were just talking about Donald Trump. And again, just as, um, as Donald Trump and some of the mistakes he's made with regard to the, um, uh, the health care issue, but particularly the travel ban, um, part of the problem with him was that he wanted to show that he was getting things done and wanted to hit the ground running and that that was more important than thinking through the policy. In this case, I think she wants to show that she's got ideas and she's doing things and she's trying. I'm not suggesting it won't be a good policy. I'm just suggesting that we're probably not going to know by June of 2018 and that it's really more about the activity and the action to show that there are new things going on. The idea itself, I gather you have another, uh, another guest coming up in a few minutes that will talk more about the implications of the policy. Um, look, there are people in our society that are, are truly suffering, and the idea mm. of having a, um, a safety net, at least a modest safety net beneath them, is, is certainly a wor- an idea worth exploring. There are people, particularly those that are perhaps less well-educated and that do not fit into the more contemporary job market, that have problems. I think this is a, a commendable idea. Whether it will work or not, I don't know. As you've mentioned already in the intro, um, that indeed there's a limited number of communities. They're representative of different sections of the province, one up in the north in Thunder Bay, one in a more, um, a, a more rural area in terms of, of Lindsay, and then the more urban area of, of, of Hamilton, and I guess Brantford's going to be included as well. Um, they, they are geographically diverse. They're politically diverse. Each one of them is you know, represented by, by you know, different, uh, different political parties. Uh, nonetheless, um, it's, I think it's an intriguing idea. But to answer your original question, I think it clearly is more about politics than policy at this point. We're getting into that final year, the final grind. A lot of people in the Liberal Party uh, would like to see um, uh, Wynne, Kat, uh, Catherine Wynne leave. I'm not sure that it even matters at this point whether she's there or not. But nonetheless, I think this is very much about politics. Uh, is this trying to ward off the NDP or those that might be thinking of moving farther left? Yeah, um, again, she's, uh, I guess uh, the polls vary a little bit. She's sort of close to the NDP, but I've seen polls where she's actually behind the NDP. And in the Hamilton area, of course, the NDP is very, very well entrenched, and in some other areas of of southwestern Ontario. I guess it's an attempt to appeal to the kind of voters that might go for the NDP. The the problem for the Liberals, and again, uh, you know, typically in government, we tend to think of two terms in, two terms out after about eight years, Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to see a rotation of the governments in power, not always, but, but typically. Um, and indeed, with regard to the Liberals, they, by next year they'll have been in place for almost double that, 15 years. Um, and indeed, I think that's part of the issue itself. Uh, Wynne herself does not seem to have had whatever, and she was certainly appealing enough when she first came in in the last election. 
but just does not seem to have the persona that has really resonated with uh, swing voters and people have deserted her. Uh, clearly, the energy price issue was, was had a lot to do with the, the movement away. And I, I do want to suggest, I don't think the uh, it's a lock for the conservatives. I think Brown is a figure that um, will have challenges during the election campaign himself, itself. But the lead now for the conservatives over the, uh, the liberals is so dramatic. It's something close to 20 points. Uh, that it's hard to imagine that the conservatives will fall that far. I do think there will be momentum back away from the conservatives somewhat toward the liberals. But right now it would be a huge, a huge landslide. I think the liberals won the last time by about seven points over the liberals. We now see the Tories up by 20. We're not talking just about a majority government. We're talking about a landslide. If those numbers bear any resemblance to what's going to happen come June of, of 2018. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, obviously elected with a huge majority and now, uh, boy, oh boy, falling through the baseboards. Uh, is this all electricity? In terms of what, what the problem was? In, in, yeah, going from literally, literally doing a 180 here. That, well, the, uh, if you're talking about the energy prices, when you say electricity... Um, um, I think that seems to have been the issue more than any other yeah. that was associated with the liberal decline. But I really think it's just time for a change. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, if um, if Wynn had been able to per- portray herself, and again, she's she's trying. She's you know sort of spinning the wheels and hoping that the policies like this are going to uh, going to get Ontario's attention. And is it going to appeal to some new Democrats? Quite possibly. Um, uh, again, I'm not sure how much is going to be able to be actually be put in place. They've probably been looking at the idea of this for a while, so it's not something that's straight uh, you know, out of the blue. But the idea that they're implementing it now within about a year of the election itself suggests that we're not going to really know how, how successful this particular policy is going to be by the time the next election occurs. And my guess is that, indeed, it may help a little bit at the margins, but this is not going to transform Win into a, a universally popular figure. Um, I, I, I do think that it, come the election campaign, we'll have lots of time to talk about that over the next year. But in, in the election campaign itself, I do think that there is some vulnerability. Brown does not have a strong identity either, and he's been all over the map on different sorts of issues. But I, I just, more than anything, I just think that people are ready for a change from the Liberal Party. Uh, is this, uh, and, and this, we should stress, obviously, this is a pilot project to be tested in Hamilton, Lindsay, and Thunder Bay, but is this really, uh, is this about a new program, or is this about updating and combining other programs that need to be uh, updated? I haven't seen the details in terms of what other programs it's going to roll over, and um, it could well be that, uh, well, it, it's, it's certainly new in the sense that it's different. Yeah. It may be that it's going to absorb other assistance programs that are in place now. But again, I, I just sort of became aware of it this morning, you know, when I was contacted by your office in terms of, of where it was going. And um, um, I, I, I think personally, even though I think it's an idea worth trying, and I, I certainly am not critical of the concept, uh, the fact, the timing of it makes one highly suspicious. The fact that this is just tr- trying to sort of throw spaghetti against the wall, hoping that this may stick in a way that other things that the liberals have tried lately haven't stuck. Look, you know, if we go back to the 2011 election, two elections ago, the liberals almost lost that time. At that point, however, there was a signal to McGinty. It was time to get out. Mm-hmm. He did get out. He was replaced by somebody that basically looked new and different and allowed the liberals to come back, reasonably form a majority government in 2014. Um, but um, to me, it isn't just about a win or the energy prices. It's, it's just about the fact that it's time for something different. Uh, NDP Andrea Horvath announces a provincial pharmacare plan. Boy, this is all coincidence. Is one taking the wind out of the other's sails? 
Yeah, actually, that that had been announced even before the uh, the win announcement uh, today. Um, the idea of extending yes, this was uh, over the weekend at their uh, at a convention. But again, yeah. PharmaCare is uh, an idea. Again, I happen to have it as a benefit, so it wouldn't affect me particularly. But I, th- I think it's a great idea to to have uh, people uh, in our society not be dependent upon the vagaries of their health in terms of their economic well-being. Um, so I think that's a good idea as well. Um, I, I do see that there is going to be some back and forth between the liberals and the NDP. The fact that the liberals are moving to the left with regard to this basic policy suggests that part of their attraction appeal is to go for the um, the NDP vote, and may, maybe it'll help, uh, at the margins at least. The problem with um, with that, however, is that the, the conservatives at, currently in the polls are in the mid-40s. That's even stronger than the liberals have been. And uh, that isn't enough. Going after the NDP vote is not going to be enough to help uh, win stay in government, if that's what the ultimate goal is after the next election. When we look around the province, there are different areas where, and certainly some of the NDP seats are seats the liberals might have a shot at. Hamilton being a great example, because the NDP does very well in Hamilton and other industrial areas, Windsor and so forth, and some areas of the north. But basically, the liberal seats that are probably most vulnerable are the seats in the the bigger cities, Hamilton sort of included, but Hamilton's more of an NDP base, but particularly in Toronto and Ottawa, um, and particularly in suburbia. And those seats are not going to be lost to the NDP. If those seats fall in areas, like, particularly not so much the downtown Toronto seats, but in areas like Scarborough and Etobicoke, parts of North York, but especially Mississauga, York Region, and so forth, Brampton, uh, those are sweet seats that are much more likely to be swing seats that go back and forth between the Liberals and Conservatives. And if come, come election night, and that's 14 months away, come election night, if in fact the Conservatives are going to win big, as the polls would indicate at the moment, things can change. Um, I think it's going to be in those seats that the, the change is going to occur. It's not so much a matter of whether or not the NDP is able to hold on to Hamilton and Windsor and some of their bases, or even in the north. It's whether or not the conservatives are going to take all those liberal seats that they basically hold now in the ring around the downtown Toronto core. So if you're, and as you mentioned, this party uh, just been in power a long time anyway, so you know, at the end of the day, it, it may not matter what you do here. In regard to leadership, which there's been lots of chatter about over the last couple of weeks, uh, is it better just to let her take this into the next election? If you were in the Liberal Party, would you want her uh, a new leader installed before that? I guess if I was a Liberal MPP, and again, I don't think, she, if she's going to go, my hunch is, at one time I thought that she was likely to be pushed. But it doesn't seem that's going to happen, and there's certainly no mechanism to make her go if she doesn't want. But that, in fact, she would probably really have to go by the end of the summer to allow um, a leadership convention to take place in the fall and to allow the next liberal leader provide a sense of, of being able to establish themselves. That's kind of what um, Wynne had the opportunity to do prior to, uh, prior to 2014. Um, if I was a liberal MPP, I would probably, uh, and I think a, a number of them are, are sort of thinking of sort of packing it in and retiring. Um, I, I probably would hope that she would leave and hope that, in fact, a replacement might be able to strike a new chord in the way that Wynne did back in 2014. Uh, but quite frankly, I think we're getting to the point after 15 years that um, I, I think it's going to be a stretch to think that any liberal leader is likely to win, win, win the, the next election. The best hope might be that, in fact, if the conservatives come down some, but I, I, can't, I can't imagine them losing even 10 points from the margin they've got now. But if they come down some and that the liberals and the NDP don't fight so e- each other so much, but basically might, might potentially have a shot at, at reducing the uh, conservatives to minority situation. Uh, even that, I think, is a long shot. But I think that's probably the better bet. 
but it, for for liberal MPPs, there's a number of liberal MPPs uh, or people connected to the party that have already suggested that it's it's time for her to go. What I'm not convinced about, though, is that her departure would necessarily be associated with, you know, a dramatic liberal rise at this point. When, uh, if that does in fact happen, I I mean, and should they forget about uh, from here till the next year and instead look to the future and rebuilding and who will be there? I mean, will we see if she loses a lot of these MPs out and a or MPPs out and a completely uh, new liberal party come next election? Well, yeah, they were. I think this kind of talk is really post June 2018. Right. Uh, the liberals aren't going to sort of acknowledge that it's over and that they don't have a chance. I, I mean, right. that just is implausible. I think many of them, in their heart of hearts, understand that that's probably what what is going on. I think some of the younger liberals. It really depends on the seats. The seats that the liberals are most likely to lose. It's not so much that they're going to make gains that are going to allow them to push the NDP out of the Hamilton seats. I just don't see that happening. Uh, the liberals didn't hold most of those seats in the last election when they did much better province-wide. Where the liberals are in trouble in terms of losing seats, it's particularly in suburban suburban uh, Ontario, the the, uh, the suburban exurban, and you know some of the areas that I mentioned. The downtown core of Toronto, I don't think the um, the liberals will lose, and probably that's the same with Ottawa. Uh, but it's in that uh, there's an awful lot of seats between Oshawa and Oakville outside of the city, but even within the suburban range around the downtown core. Those are the seats that the liberals are probably going to lose to the conservatives, you know, when one looks at the projections and past, and past voting history. Um, and those are the MPPs that are probably thinking that if they've done their time and they're ready to spend more time with their family, those are the seats that I think some of those MPPs are probably going, thinking of retiring. The, uh, there, there are core seats. With, uh, the, the strong central urban seats are not likely to go conservative. But the NDP seats aren't really likely to go, uh, aren't likely to, to, to go liberal. So the, the notion that the liberals are focusing, trying to win NDP votes in suburban Toronto might help a little bit. But the thought that the the liberals are going to um, win in, well, particularly the Hamilton, all those Hamilton seats that the NDP holds now, I think that really is a stretch. The NDP is actually doing much better relative to the liberals after this. Um, people who might, might otherwise vote NDP in seats that the NDP doesn't really have a chance to win, whether they're more likely to vote liberal just to keep the Tories out, that's strategic voting, maybe that's a scenario. But your, your question was really about what should uh, liberal MPPs do, and I think it's going to depend on their ridings. But the people in those suburban ridings around Toronto and the, uh, the edges of Ottawa, those are the people whose seats, I think, are really in trouble, and whether or not they choose to stay and fight another day, I guess, depends on, on their own inclination. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to chat. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Talking uh, about Premier Kathleen Wynne announcing a pilot project will include uh, Hamilton, Brantford, Lindsay, Thunder Bay, uh, taking part in a new provincial project into a basic income. To talk more about all of this, Amin Mawani is with us, Associate Professor of Accounting, Schulich School of Business, York University, and is with us now. Hello, Amin. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So what are your thoughts at first glance at this, I mean, Is this good policy or is this politics? Um, I believe it is good policy. Uh, it offers uh, several benefits uh, that I can go on. Um, so first of all, a basic minimum income can reduce uncertainty for the citizen and thereby improve the quality of life. Uh, greater certainty improves quality of life. Uh, second, basic income can reduce administrative cost and complexity for the citizen. 
in part by consolidating different programs and offering one-stop shopping for the citizen. Uh, basic income can also reduce uncertainty for the government, uh, thereby allowing them to budget better. Uh, fourth, basic income can ensure more uniform delivery of benefits to the targeted group. Uh, it's not subject to ensuring that citizens have to fill out all the forms or go to uh, expensive intermediaries uh, for tax preparation services and so on. And finally, uh, research has shown that basic minimum income can also improve a citizen's overall health, uh, and therefore it has the potential to reduce overall health care cost for the government. So there are lots of benefits. Uh, here's what uh, Premier Wynne had to say about it. The project will explore the effectiveness of providing a basic income to people who are currently living on low incomes, whether they're working or not. And people participating in our pilot communities will receive a minimum amount of income each year, a basic income, no matter what. It's not an extravagant sum by any means. For a single person, we're talking about just under $17,000 a year. But even that amount may make a real difference to someone who's striving to reach a better life. Uh, is this, I mean, a new program, or is it an updating of, of old and a combination of others put together? Is this just time for this? It's a little bit of uh, all of the above. Uh, to some extent, it aggregates or consolidates uh, multiple programs, but for some, it'll be something new, and but for sure, it'll reduce the complexity and the cost of delivering it. And how will we know if this pilot project is a success or not? What criteria? What do you base that on? How would you know? Uh, well, first of all, we could uh, hopefully the government in piloting this is uh, measuring its cost of delivery, uh, either through this one program or through several existing programs under the old system, so they can compare the cost uh, before versus after. They can look at other benefits. Uh, they can get feedback from the citizens who received this to see uh, how they viewed it. Uh, was it a big improvement or was it the same as before? Third, they could look at uh, perhaps if they can track them to their OHIP claims and so on to see if, they, uh, if there was any impact on their use of the healthcare system. So uh, we can find out a lot more over time uh, about any potential benefit and the incremental or, or the le uh, differential in cost to the government. Is it a good idea doing a pilot project? Should this this, this be something that's thought been thought be thought out and then uh, implementation, or is it good to do something like this to see what some of the challenges may be? Are we going to find out that much information through a pilot project? I think so. I think uh, a pilot project uh, enables us to really um, control for many things. Uh, maybe within the same postal code, we can uh, pilot it to some citizens and not offer the uh, offer the existing uh, program to some citizens and then compare to see what are the benefits and then compare the cost to the government. So I think there's every reason for doing a pilot uh, we can really then get a better sense of what the total cost would be to once we uh, pull the system out for for everyone. Uh, is this, so? I'm getting email from people saying this is just about buying votes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, there may always be some element of that uh, in everything governments do. Uh, that's uh, 
reality of uh, the political system. But we have to, um, you know, uh, this allows us, hopefully, the, the results of the pilot will be shared with uh, all taxpayers to see if it does re- reduce cost to the government of doing some of this. And then, and if it improves the benefit to the citizens in doing this, then we can assess it on our own. And hopefully, the, the political element can be either identified or mitigated in, in doing so. Will this lower other costs once implemented? Or, you know, I guess the pilot project will determine that. But will we see costs come down in other programs, in other areas that will justify this? Uh, I think so. I think if you're uh, right now, approximate similar amounts may be delivered through maybe three different ministries, each with its own overhead and a, you know, a deputy minister and so on. So if they are all delivered through one um, minimum guaranteed income, then it could reduce overhead in two other ministries. Uh, and then if there's any savings uh, to the healthcare system as a result of having some minimum income and or reduce uncertainty, uh, we, we could see some cost savings. Uh, uh, NDP, Ontario NDP leader uh, Andrew Horvath uh, announcing a PharmaCare plan uh, covering 125 drugs uh, it, for uh, people in Ontario. Can, can you see something like this building? Can you see something like this gaining momentum? Uh, I, I think there's, there might be room for some um, uh, uh, universal or at least a province-wide uh, drug plan as well. We find uh, that in some ways it does uh, curtail low-income citizens' need or ability to buy prescription drugs. Uh, Secondly, a drug plan does reduce hospital stay. So once we uh, incorporate the benefits of such a plan, uh, perhaps arguably it could more than pay for the cost. Uh, and a pilot along those lines would be good as well, maybe to start with a, a small number of drugs before we uh, get into covering all the drugs. Um, a lot of people concerned that once government gets involved and wades into things like this, that it becomes more expensive, it becomes less transparent, um, and, and, a lot, and very much top-heavy. Uh, how do we prevent that from happening when introducing programs such as either one of these? It is difficult, but, you know, we have lots of institutions that track data uh, and, pub- and researchers who pursue uh, studies looking at data from Kai High Canadian Institute of Health Information and uh, other agencies that track OHIP data to see who's using it, who are the frequent users, and so on. So I think uh, we... Well, first of all, the pilot program should have enough uh, data collection to ensure that uh, the benefits do exceed the cost, that actually implementing such a program is cost-beneficial. And, uh, yeah, same with the drug plan. Uh, once that is uh, highlighted, then we can we can ensure that uh, uh, some of the concerns that you're raising, that this becomes entrenched and becomes uh, non-transparent, can be mitigated. There is a large research community that, and institutions in place to make sure that it remains as, much, as transparent as possible. Uh, 
obviously we've seen, especially with healthcare, things like this, costs spiral out of control. It seems that it, it, it's hard to, to, to hold uh, some of these uh, bodies uh, accountable for, for the money that's being spent. Perhaps running these new pilot projects, these new systems, should they be concentrating on sustainability more than they are just, you know, grabbing the 20-second sound bites that seem to get people's attention? Because at the end of the day, if we can solve uh, cost issues and, and, and make things become more efficient, isn't that really what's going to win votes? Uh, yes, eventually. But maybe this pilot is a way of showing uh, that it's cost-efficient. Uh, right now, uh, I'm not sure that we uh, we know as citizens whether the the three programs that this pilot may replace are sustainable in the first place. So maybe more uh, coverage of this will allow us to uh, see if it if it is uh, uh, you know if if it is sustainable and if it is cost efficient. How do we prevent the, again, getting a lot of email from listeners, creating a welfare state, all this sort of thing? How, how do we balance all of that? How do we make sure, and, and even the Premier talked about that this would create incentive uh, for people to do better. H- how can we do that? Uh, true. The, uh, the incentive issue remains. Uh, I think uh, to have a thorough answer to this, we would have to look at what programs is it replacing and perhaps the existing programs uh, that do offer money right now to citizens and that would be replaced by this minimum income also um, has incentive issues. So one has to compare and, um, you know, I think the fact that this is a pilot will create some transparency. There will be uh, units that will evaluate this and uh, will, we can then, the research community can examine whether the incentive issues are comparable for this new program compared to the existing programs that it is replacing. With the global economy that we now live in, uh, other countries uh, raising their standard of living, perhaps the West lowering theirs simply because of of equalization, uh, is this sort of thing inevitable, do you think, a basic income? Uh, I think all uh, governments are looking into simplifying things for their citizens. Right now, there's quite a few government programs that are not reaching the intended audience or the target audience because either citizens are not aware of it or they need a lot of help in uh, finding the right forms to fill out or maybe there are some intermediaries that uh, that require some fees uh, before they can be helped. Uh, the, the disability community is, is one of those where, uh, and again, this minimum income program would uh, would, would uh, impact the disabled community a fair bit. So a one-stop shopping is might be mutually beneficial. It reaches the targeted income uh, group and saves money for the government. We often hear political leaders on both sides of the border talk about the middle class, the middle class. Uh, Obviously, this isn't about the middle class, is it? Or does this help the middle class in the long run? Uh, It's not about the middle class. This 17,000 is at the very uh, bottom end. Bottom end. I mean, if you just look at the average rent, uh, it would take away more than two-thirds or maybe two-thirds of it. So and the food budget for a typical family of two even is five or six hundred. So there's nothing left after rent and food in this minimum income. Uh, 
is um because uh, of the shrinking middle class are these uh, are politicians worried that these levels need more and more service uh well there are lots of programs for this lower income group i think what the politicians are concerned is whether they can be delivered at a lower cost uh and reach the targeted audience and hence this is what this is all about and and reduce the uncertainty for the targeted audience it's it's very difficult for someone at that low income group not knowing whether they'll you know be eligible for their 5000 here and 8000 there and so on it's nice to know the word guaranteed income helps a bit and to know that you will be getting uh, roughly 17000 a year if you're in that group um so that certainty really helps the quality of life uh, the pilot projects, Hamilton, uh, Lindsay, and Thunder Bay, should there not be a bigger center involved in this in this pilot, do you think? I think uh, Hamilton is of sufficient size, for example, within these three jurisdictions to have uh, different variations of uh, target audience. Uh, and that, you know, uh, yeah, I'm not sure why they chose these three and why they didn't choose some uh, parts of Toronto, for example. But, you would think uh, you would think simply because of the cost involved in living in centers like that. Perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, the benefit would have been less detectable. Right. Good point. Amin Mawani has been with us, associate professor of accounting, Schulich School of Business, York University, talking about Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne's pilot project. Uh, on a basic income, including cities Hamilton, Lindsay, and Thunder Bay. I mean, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Two candidates are moving forward to the next phase of France's election. We'll explain that in just a sec. Uh, Marine Le Pen of the National Front Party, Emmanuel Macron, of the Marche Party, uh, two voters uh, now to choose between as we move on to the next phase. Let's hear from each one of them. This is Macron first. The struggle to be able to be the leader of our country starts tonight and we will win that struggle. Long live the Republic and long live France. All right, and here's what Le Pen had to say. It's not with the air of François Hollande and all the failures, these catastrophic five years. All right, uh, there's just a couple of clips. Let's bring in Andrew Glenn Cross, senior, uh, senior lecturer, Department of Politics, Aston University in Birmingham, and on the line with us now. Hello, Andrew. How are you today? I'm very well. Good afternoon, Scott, and all your listeners. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Tell us about the two left in this race and how monumental this all was over the weekend. So these two were not necessarily expected, certainly not Emmanuel Macron, who's running basically as an independent candidate who's never stood for election before and actually had to create his own party just to stand in this election. And he's facing off someone who has inherited a political party set up by her father, which had much more extreme opinions back in the day. And she's tried to sanitize those and make herself attractive to a broader audience, but she still has some far-right views. And that's a really unexpected standoff between these two now. How, uh, how, how bad has this shaken up uh, politics in France? As you mentioned, these are two underdogs that are now the front runners. It's 
caused a real political earthquake. And we see that the unusual thing is that Macron actually has a profile that is very mainstream, former banker, government official, government minister. But actually, he's doing it by himself in a very different, unusual, almost bottom-up sort of way. So that's a real shake-up. And his opponent has done it the old-fashioned way through a lot of graft and a lot of political organization, but she's not a mainstream politician of one of the mainstream parties. So there's really going to be a lot of head-scratching amongst those traditional political parties in France today. What message does this deliver to those traditional parties? It suggests that people don't trust them. People don't believe in the promises they've continued to make for the past decades. And that obviously that suggests that people want a change. People want a different kind of politics with different kinds of politicians. Uh, obviously, we've seen a lot of the protest vote uh, across, well, around the world, whether it's Brexit, whether it's the Trump election in the United States. Do you feel the same sort of momentum building there? There's a lot of skepticism, a lot of anger, yes. So there are very similar dynamics at play. And it's a question of which politician, which party has the cunning, the guile to really tap into that and make it a success. What does it say, though, Andrew, when someone like Emmanuel Macron, who, uh, as you said, no experience basically creating his own party in order to to, to run it in this, and, and now he finds himself uh, on the last ballot? I, I mean, that certainly sends a, a clear message that people are upset with traditional politics, does it not? It tells us a lot about the trends that are global, at least in the Western democratic world. Think about Bernie Sanders' insurgency, and as you said before about Brexit, it suggests that voters want sorts of change that isn't being offered to them, and that the people who then come across as genuine, as able to reflect change, whether it's for good or even for bad, those are the ones that get the support. Uh, Le Pen, I understand, wants to have a referendum very similar to Brexit, questioning whether they want to be a part of uh, the European Union. How much of an incentive is that for people living there? Well, it's certainly a big electoral incentive from Le Pen's point of view, because you might think that 50% of the voters in the first round actually voted for parties that, and candidates that actually are against the EU. So it's a big play on her part, and it's certainly one way that she could potentially get a majority from. It doesn't necessarily have the same traction as it did in the UK, because there are more fears associated with ripping up the rule book of French foreign policy than there was in the UK. France is just much more invested politically, economically in the EU than the UK has ever been. Is there a movement in France to get out of the EU? And has, when we're seeing what's happened with Brexit, has that changed people's minds at all, do you think? The Brexit precedent is probably not an inspiring one from a French perspective. It shows the big problems associated with tearing up the treaties, tearing up the economic arrangements. Nevertheless, that's a card that Le Pen wants to try and play. And Macron is in the other camp. He's very much a supporter of the EU. And in fact, he's on the record as saying he wants Brexit to be as painful and difficult as possible for the UK. So that is a real difference between the two 
candidates going forward. Where does this leave the European Union? Uh, do you think this is, or more, will threaten to leave if, if uh, of course, this moves forward in that direction? It could be that way, but people said the same after Brexit, and the momentum hasn't necessarily been there. Don't forget, Le Pen didn't come first in the um, first round runoff, which there might have been fears that she would have done originally, immediately after Brexit. So the momentum, if anything, is actually more in favour of the EU at the moment than it is against. But that could all change very rapidly, because it seems as if politics is in flux in Europe at the moment. How concerned are Europeans with the breakup of the European Union? Uh, Is there more in favor of it and keeping it together than there is trying to separate it? It seems as if the Brexit issue has resonated across all EU countries, but in a way that suggests that actually there's more to be lost if the EU were to crumble than the other way around. So I think it's actually going to have a positive effect on the politicians who still support the EU and who think actually that citizens can now realise what's at stake by someone who threatens to leave the EU, as the UK is now doing. Do you think this has more to do with economics or security? It's probably the intermingling of both, because the security angle that is played up by politicians like Le Pen is inherently economic. It's about unemployment. It's about jobs being lost through international trade and also through competition on the basis of immigration. So on that basis, the two have become very inseparable issues in European politics. Obviously, you could see the advantage for Russia if they start fragmenting the West or or, or any part of the EU, for that matter. Uh, Are Europeans concerned about that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's a sort of shadow that is a Putin-sized shadow that looms over Europe, but it's not clear how conscious voters are of that, although there does seem to be a tendency amongst those who are sceptical about the EU who oppose EU assistance for refugees, those kind of things, those attitudes tend to be to coincide with a pro-Russian or at least a pro-Putin understanding of world politics, whereby hard decisions might need to be taken and a tough line needs to be taken, especially with terrorists. So that is an issue that does also split European voters. How are those in France resting today, knowing what they have ahead of them between these two leaders? Uh, what are the thoughts of, of, of what lies ahead? Well, everyone's been on the lookout to see what the losing candidates in that first round has act, have actually said about who they would like their voters to um, plump for. And there it seems as if everyone basically, except for the hard left candidate Mélenchon, is prepared to support the Macron bid for the presidency. So there's a lot of consensus to try and keep Le Pen out of the presidential office. It is this. Does that work for or against Le Pen? I mean, we saw that certainly in the United States with Trump, and it seemed the more that, uh, the more that criticized him, the more popular he became. Yeah, that would be straight from the American playbook in terms of the kind of hostility that mainstream politics, mainstream media place on a candidate can perversely have the opposite effect. And certainly she will play that card up to the maximum effect possible. But 
there might still be a majority who fear the consequences of Le Pen more than they actually mistrust Macron and his background of mainstream support. It seems we live or are moving towards a world of extremes, uh, no matter what part of the of the world that you are in. Uh, you know, you're, it's either extreme left, it's extreme right. There's there doesn't seem to be much in the middle now. Uh, you're either on one team or or the other. Where does this go in places like Europe? Do you see uh, unification on the horizon? I mean, will we have learned enough from Brexit that that, in the end, makes people think twice, brings people together, as opposed to try to divide them? Well, the forces that you're talking about in themselves are, to some degree, unifying, because it seems as if those extremes are happening across European countries. So actually, there's a lot of commonality there Mm. in terms of how those extremes now happen in the same way across countries. But of course, to actually then get a consensus about tackling the same problems in a same and shared manner, that still seems to be lacking because elections in different countries produce different kinds of leaders with different kinds of promises. There isn't a centralizing apparatus to channel all of those forces. So in fact, there might still be a problem on that basis. How do traditional uh, politicians or political parties react to this? What can they learn from this? Uh, I remember after Trump was elected, a lot were criticizing him and and I thought missing the point in the sense that, you know, I, I think people realize what he is. The point here is they're still with, willing to vote for that as opposed to the traditional candidates. So what can those traditional candidates and parties learn from all of this? They, first and foremost, probably shouldn't fool themselves, fool themselves into thinking that the electorate understands that they are perhaps the best place to offer policy solutions or to keep going along with the conventional narratives that they favor. I think they need to understand that there's a great degree of skepticism. Social media, other channel outlets probably foster that skepticism about the promises the candidates held, especially if they've got a large background in political campaigning. And as a result, they need to start taking seriously the concerns of ordinary citizens and the willingness of ordinary citizens as well to actually go with different kinds of politics and politicians. Is that going to happen or are we going to hear more or and see more extremism before they realize that? It might vary from place to place, but I think the extreme tendencies that you've rightly been picking up on have already shaped the responses of the mainstream. And it's a question of the ones who actually get that message who might then succeed better compared with the ones who basically bury their head in the sand. Andrew Glenn Cross has been with us, senior lecturer, Department of Politics, Aston University in Birmingham. Andrew, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Let's bring in Jeff Semple, Global News Europe Bureau Chief. He is with us now. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, What does it say? What's the feeling across Europe and in France when it looks like traditional parties are bounced out and two fringe candidates are, are left in the race? Well, yeah, I think, you know what, uh, somewhat ironically, there's a great sense of relief uh, right now across this continent among certainly leaders in countries such as Germany to see 
uh, Emmanuel Macron do as well as he did uh, last night. I think people were sort of, uh, you know, again, the sort of mainstream Europe world order, if you'd like, very concerned about the prospect of a Le Pen victory and also very concerned that she might go into the second round facing one of the other candidates, uh, certainly others like we saw on the extreme left, for example, who might not be as as well suited to beat her, might not sort of represent that anyone but Le Pen, Le Pen candidate that they see in, in Emmanuel Macron. So I think uh, generally people are breathing a sigh of relief today because they see that Macron has advanced to the second round with Marine Le Pen, and they are looking at these opinion polls that give him such a wide lead, more than 60 percentage points ahead of Le Pen at, in the sort of high 30s. And it has to be said, worth noting, Scott, that the uh, friendship public opinion pollsters tend to be pretty good at their craft. They were bang on pretty much last night, just like they were the past couple of presidential elections. They are predicting Macron will win handily in a couple of weeks. Uh, and so a lot of people, including the markets, breathing a sigh of relief, expecting that they're right. Uh, we all saw what happened with Brexit. We all ha- saw what happened with the United States election. Uh, many thought neither would happen. Uh, could the same thing happen here with Le Pen? Could she pull a stunning victory out of this? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, you know, that's the question every time we talk about opinion polls, isn't it? That, you know, the, the polls are pointing one way, but, you know, the polls didn't predict Brexit, as you mentioned, nor did they predict Donald Trump would happen. Now, although it's worth uh, making the distinction that the French electoral system is a little bit different than that mm-hmm. in the United States, and that, you know, now it's down to two. Every vote does count for, a, uh, in terms of the tally of the percentage points, it's not the electoral college system or even the first-past-the-post system like we have in Canada. So perhaps a little bit easier to predict in that sense because you're just counting votes instead of electoral colleges. But no, you're right. I mean, at this point, uh, you know, if I was a betting man, I would have lost a money, a lot of money over the last year. Uh, and so I think it's it's anyone's guess, really. The, the thinking is, though, it's hard to find a, a pollster who who doesn't think that Macron is going to win because the margin appears to be so large. He just has such a a huge lead. The big question, though, and the real wild card, and something that's more difficult to predict, is, you know, tapping into that anger that we've seen among the French electorate. The people are just fed up, disenfranchised with mainstream politicians. Uh, It's why we saw the two main political parties in France defeated uh, in the first round for the first time in six decades last night. And it's why we saw hundreds of people then taking to the streets afterwards in protest in Paris, angry at, at both candidates, angry at Macron, angry at Le Pen, unhappy with their current situation, unhappy with their options. So the question is, if Macron really does represent that anyone but Le Pen vote on May the 7th, Will enough of those voters actually show up to cast a ballot, or will they stay home and give potentially Le Pen an opportunity to sneak in there, given that her supporters are seen to be more dedicated to her than, say, Macron and his supporters who are voting for him just to stop Le Pen from getting in? Uh, Le Pen says if elected, will hold a referendum similar to Brexit. How does that play? Well, that's right. We've seen certainly some support for that in the public opinion polls in France, and you're right. She would say that uh, if she, as soon as she's in, that would be priority number one, to uh, hold a referendum, just like we saw in the U.K., to follow Brexit with the Frexit. And, you know, European leaders, that's why they're so, you know, concerned about this, because, you know, it's really a lot of observers would suggest that if Le Pen were to win, that that would spell the end of the European Union, that it can... 
the EU can survive Brexit, but it cannot survive a Frexit. Doesn't that sca- uh, so does that scare people? So much at stake. Does that scare people, Jeff? The thought that that that, that could be broken up. I think that's uh, yeah. I think that legitimately terrifies the leaders, and that's why this election has been watched so closely. I mean, I think that that's you know we talk about leaders like Angela Merkel, we talk about leaders like uh, Federico Mogherini at the European Union, we talk about these sort of mainstream politicians who you know in in a, in a in a the world's largest trading bloc, one of these sort of post World War foundations of the liberal world order being seriously threatened here. I mean, we have, you know, we generally talk about the big economies of the European Union. We were, you know, before Brexit, used to talking about the UK, talking about France, talking about Italy, talking about Germany. But once you've taken, you know, the UK away, then the the foundation of the European Union itself is much more fragile. And a lot of people are worried that, you know, that a Le Pen victory would result in a referendum and we'd see the similar, similar result we saw in the UK. And for Canada, a country that just signed on with that landmark free trade deal, CETA, of course, with the European Union, there's a lot at stake for Canadians here, too. Uh, you know, the very realistic prospect that, uh, you know, if Le Pen were to win, Canada's trade agreement with the European Union would, at very, would, would itself be at risk if she followed through with her referendum threat. Uh, and very quickly, last question, how do traditional politicians, parties that lost and are out of this uh, next round, what do they learn from this? How do they, what do they take from this moving forward? Yeah, you know, especially for the the French Socialist Party, the incumbent party, I think there'll be a lot of soul searching. I mean, it's hard to sort of look for examples of, of, of traditional mainstream parties that have imploded, like we've seen with the Socialist Party. Francois Hollande, the current serving French president, so unpopular that he didn't even bother running again, and his party came in with less than seven percent of the total vote. So a real implosion of that, you know, traditional juggernaut of French political mainstream. Where they begin is is a tough question. I mean, if I had the answer to that, I think I'd be, be making a little more money than <laughs> we're making currently. I, it's, I, you know, I think what what we've got in France, and a lot of people, you know, certainly pollsters in the last 24 hours have been making the comparison between the electorate in France and the electorate in the United States. The fact that people are angry unhappy feel that they've been let down by the mainstream political class and how to convince those people to come you know back on board if you like is it is going to be a difficult argument for to make because i think people in france have have you know they've tried voting for the left-wing mainstream party they tried voting for the right-wing mainstream party and they feel let down by both and you know that entire left-right model has uh, been blown up uh, in you know the election of Donald Trump and now in this election in France. Jeff Semple has been with us, Global News Europe Bureau Chief, and of course watch Global News uh, tonight for more on this. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.